Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Sean Amos is our guest today. He's an author. He's a musician. He plays the harmonica. Sean does so many cool things. I hope you enjoy this episode. Before we start, I'll just mention that there is mentions of child sexual abuse. This episode contains brief mentions, so that may not be suitable for all listeners. Please enjoy Sean Amos as he reflects on his life and his process. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning. And on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Sean Amos is our guest. Sean, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, man. It's great to be here. It is great to have you. You did the process in what month? Oh, boy. I did in 2008. I'm certain about that. I think it was August. I'm pretty sure it was a, a summer. August of 2008. Wow. Yeah. I know. A long time ago. I didn't realize it was that long ago. Yeah, 2008 BC. <laughs> <laughs> you have done so much in your life. Will you introduce yourself a little bit? There's so much to share about who you are and what you've done. Yeah, I, I, I've worn a few hats, I guess. I, I spend a chunk of my time singing and writing and recording and performing blues music uh, under, I guess, a bit of an alter ego. That The Reverend Sean Amos is what I perform under, and that's a a big chunk of my time and a, and a big piece of my heart. And in a good year, I'm playing in Europe and the U.S. You know, hundred dates or so a year. Managed to get you know recording out every you know year, year and a half or so, a new you know, albums worth of material. Currently writing a new album that hopefully we'll get out next year. I spend part of my time as a partner in a communications agency that's based in New York called Hudson Cutler. My my title there is partner and chief storytelling officer, which is a, a little pretentious, but I spend my time helping clients, which are mainly in the B2B space, manage their sort of uh, content, you know, help, help them figure out how to tell their stories to various constituencies. I do a lot of media training and helping executives communicate and, and present themselves more effectively and, and close the gap between how they wish to be seen and how they are seen. And then as of late, I've become a children's book author. I I wrote a middle grade uh, novel that was published last year called Cookies and Milk, which won an NAACP image award. And it's a semi-autobiographical novel about a kid named Ellis, which is my son's name, who grew up in a cookie store in Hollywood in the 1970s, which is essentially my own childhood. And the sequel for that book is coming out in October of this year. Those are the three ways... Then make my living, <laughs> and uh, there are three ways that I sort of work out my work out my stuff. <laughs> so much there, author and musician and writer and podcast host. 
Yeah, we did a few podcast series where I interviewed called The Cause of It All, which was named after an album I put out by the same name. And it was me interviewing the offspring of famous blues musicians. And it was sort of this a chance to talk about legacy, because I live with a bit of that with my own father, and talk about race and talk about how to you know get out of a shadow of someone else and you know stand in your own sunlight a little bit. And you alluded to being the the son of a dad who has a famous cookie company. Yes, my uh, my father Wally Amos was known as Famous Amos. So he he's, was a talent agent back in the '60s. Uh, he was the first black agent at the William Morris Agency. Booked bands like Simon and Garfunkel and The Animals and Solomon Burke, who I later got to work with, ironically. And, uh, and then he became a, a talent manager. And they started a cookie company called Famous Amos. And, and that's, that's become his, you know, what he's, what he's most known for. So all of that back in 2008, what was the cause? What was the pain point that had you say, let me, back then the process was eight days. Let me take eight days out of my life at least and step into this Hoffman experience. So the short answer is that Rona Elliott and Roger Brossi, uh, who are dear old friends, and Rona and Raz have known each other since the Halcyon days of the 60s. And I've known Rona and Roger since I was a child. My father actually officiated their wedding. And so I've known them since I was, since I was a kid. And they had a front row seat to nearly all of the pain and trauma in my life. They, they, they witnessed the, the, a lot of the, the chaos and neglect, just uh, uh, unfortunate circumstances that, that were a part of my childhood. And they sort of played this you know, guiding hand in my life forever. My, my, my youngest child's middle name is Elliot after another. So they've known me more than anyone else. And being the Hoffman grads that they are, and, and being the astute spiritual beings that they are, they had known how badly I needed something like that. And so they'd mentioned, yeah, they dropped hints about it over the years and sort of mentioned it, and I was aware of it. And like most people, I kept it at arm's length. You know, I was very reactionary. This, this sounds like a cult. This sounds weird. It's too hippy dippy. This is who has eight days to go away. You know, every sort of reason in the world to dismiss it. And it was never like a hard sell or anything, but just whenever it was mentioned to me, those reactions I just mentioned were really sort of inner dialogue things and innate tensing up <laughs> about the whole thing. And then I hit a bottom. You hit multiple bottoms, right? I mean, there's, there's always like a new trap door to fall through. And so the first trap door was I was married and I had an affair. And it was horrible. And I'd been in and out therapy my whole life. And I was fairly aware of, on some level, of, of unhealthy patterns I was repeating in my life. And then there's some that I could draw a line to and say, oh, yeah, this is why this is happening. But for whatever reason, I'm, uncapable, I'm incapable of cutting that cord or fixing it. And there are other ones that were like a mystery to me. Why am I behaving this way? Why, you know, someone who has a set of values in a sort of moral code that I live within, why am I stepping outside of that? I have no clue why. So there's two buckets, right? Of like things for which I had answers, but for whatever reason, fear, I was not willing to address them. And another bucket of things for which I had no answers, but was frustrated by this unseen hand that was seeming pulling strings on me. Wow, that is fantastic descriptor of awareness and consciousness versus 
you know, being unconscious and yet being aware of the impact of what's happening. Yeah, we're constantly coming into consciousness, right? I mean, and for as conscious as I prided myself on being in some areas, you know, I was completely unconscious in other areas. There's a whole other room that existed in my brain that was completely unknown altogether. I mean, like I said, that is sort of unconsciousness. Anyway, so I, I knew that I wanted to save my marriage, that that was not in doubt to me. And I knew I had to begin a, a journey of of reconciliation and of redemption and just sort of piece this thing together. And in the brief period that I'd separated from my wife, I stayed with Ronan and Roger. And once again, they said, <laughs> you should probably go to Hoffman. <laughs> and that was the moment where it, it made complete sense. And, and where else would I go in, in that moment? So I went and that was the beginning of the end and the beginning of the beginning. Wow. The beginning of the end and the beginning of the beginning. So take us to your process some 15 years ago. What do you remember? What happened for you? Take us into your week. You know, I, I, was, um, I was terrified. I was totally terrified. So I had this sort of, I felt like I was driving to my funeral or something. <laughs> and um, I remember just my, the cynicism I had. I, I call myself a skeptic now. I was a cynic then, and I remember just the knee-jerk reaction I had to anything, the loving language and the, the expressions of you know, non-judgment and safety, really. I, I, I thought that was like fake and phony and like, oh my God, I'm not going to make it through this thing. <laughs> uh, this is no way I'll make this. And I remember hearing words that were very dissonant to me together. There was um, you know, this idea of disassociating passion or compassion with manipulation or disassociating the idea that one can be sensual but not sexual. There was a lot of unhealthy intertwining of different emotional language. I live very firmly in my intellectual. We talk about the quadrinity, right? And so all the emotional language was really challenging for me at first. But there's a moment where I decided, you know, I'm here, I'm wasting a lot of money and a lot of time if I just don't go all in. I remember early on, you know, day two, maybe a bit, where I just made a conscious decision. I was just going to drop it, drop the cynicism and just, you know, go all in. And I did. And it was, it was hair-raising. Interesting hair-raising. That's not what I expected you to say. I tell people that, it really, it's like getting the owner's manual to yourself. And I feel like I just realized, oh, wow, I, I've had no idea all these unseen forces that have been moving me through the world. There's this analogy they use every often about being blown by the breeze you know, you know, versus being able to sort of like stand firmly. And that was me. I mean, 100%. I, I was just at the whim of all of these unseen forces and past traumas and and unconscious reactions to my parents and this and that. And so to get control over myself was really profound. It was really profound. And the chance to forgive all involved, right? You know, those forgiveness exercises are so heavy. And and there's tools I still use, but the events that stuck with me were the funeral whole exercise was really a powerful day for me. The letter writing experience, particularly with my mother, 
flowing her voice through me and having her write to me, began a journey that has continued to this day. And the day of silence was profound. So those are the things that, that, have, that have stuck with me. It's hard to put in words almost. You know, it, I haven't talked about this in a while. I, and I still use this language. I mean, I, I use some of this language in my life all the time. I teach staff at my agency sort of language that's often inspired the idea of like, I'm experiencing you as this, you know, this versus you are. I mean, that was like, that, that's a game changer. And I've used it every day since. And I run part of a communications agency, right? So it's like Hoffman's helped me you know, sort of become a better communicator for myself and for the people around me. Yeah, it, it fundamentally rewired my brain, man. It it's really did. Wow. It's not every day you can say that about an experience, that it fundamentally rewired your brain. Yeah, and you kind of realize how, I mean, you know, the more you get into it, I mean, I think for most people would know or, or led to believe that this process pulls upon lots of different influences. I mean, there's, there's aspects of it that are akin to cognitive behavioral therapy, and there's aspects of it that are akin to Buddhism, and there's things that are akin to it, Taoism and Christianity. I mean, it sort of pulls from all this stuff. It's a great you know, mixtape of, of all these sort of different psychological and spiritual practices that have been proven you know, over years and years and years and years. And it's helpful to go into it having had some background and you know, have I had some therapy to begin with or I, I sometimes think about if I went in there just totally cold and had you know, zero therapy in my life and zero opportunity for any kind of self-reflection I, I think that would probably be a, a difficult place to start from the mistake I made at post Hoffman was thinking that all the trap doors had been opened up yeah you know, and, and so then all the corners of my you know brain and, and, and psyche and and, and heart had you know, all the light was shining everywhere, and, and it wasn't the case you know, at all. And when you know a new trap door opened up many years later, this, this would have been now 2017, I guess, 20, you know, where I went through um, another marital challenge and, and ultimately got divorced. And the failure of that was so profound and i'm like oh my god it didn't work it didn't it didn't work i failed hoffman <laughs> but the new sort of you know the mindset this is a great book the the body keeps the score when i did that letter writing exercise i said it began this process with my mother and my mother was severely mentally ill my whole life her psychosis set in before i was born so i i, I was born into this psychotic woman's life when I did that letter writing exercise, what I began to suspect in one of those sort of hidden hands is that I was sexually abused by her. And I made that realization at Hoffman in that letter writing exercise. It, it was fuzzy. You know, I, I knew it happened, but I couldn't quite see it. I couldn't tell you when it started, when it stopped, but I knew it happened. And it's something I'd sort of suspected. It, it made a lot of other things make sense about some of the... Um, creepiness, frankly, I felt around her my whole adult life and, and how I kept her at a distance. It gave me answers as to why I had made some of the mistakes I made around you know, infidelity. It made sense around why I felt uncomfortable like hugging my kids sometimes. That was in the bucket of things that I knew was odd, but couldn't figure out why the hell that was the thing, right? So it, it answered a lot of questions, but it didn't give me any detail around the actual incident or incidents with her at all. And I remember my Hoffman teacher said, you know, sometimes knowing is enough. 
and you don't need to poke at it. And I took that to heart to give me permission to sort of like leave it there. And then my marriage fell apart and I was battling a whole other level of challenges that had to do with that abuse. But again, I couldn't quite connect the dots, right? But the Hoffman work allowed me to navigate it without completely like falling off the rails. It sort of put some guardrails up against me. And then a moment in 2018 where out of nowhere, I got a whole bunch of images for the first time. I, I just saw a couple incidents in great detail from start to finish. And from then until now, I mean, I've been in this journey for what five years now or so after having a divorce and you know rebuilding my relationship with my children and rebuilding my relationship with my ex-wife and building a new you know dating relationship but all this with the fullest consciousness i've had about what my limitations are and why i have those limitations with a clear understanding of where i need my boundaries to be and why but my ability to navigate that and get myself from A to B to C to D has all been powered by Hoffman. <laughs> Without having done that work, these revelations and these sort of new trapdoors that keep opening up with these new discoveries as I continue to unwind this deep trauma. Without Hoffman, I'd probably be locked up somewhere, you know? Uh, so so it, it is sort of the gift that keeps giving, even if I had the mistaken notion up front that, oh, it's sort of mission accomplished, right? I mean, there's, there's never a mission accomplished, like ever. You know, it's just sort of like, well, how do you have the tools to keep fighting the mission, to keep forging ahead on, on the mission? You know, when you talk about it both helped you in your process and besides that little blip of mission accomplished, the falsehood of that, that it's continued to help you navigate any current trapdoors, as you say, that pop up in your life without getting so overwhelmed that you can't continue the process. Yeah, like the whole thing is need to get blown up. My sister is a uh, producer for Condé Nast, and they just premiered a documentary that my sister executive produced on Hillsong Church. And so I was watching it because my sister produced it and I want to support her. Episode three and four takes this turn where Lentz is talking about his sexual abuse as a child, which is part of what f- fueled his wrong turns. And then they interviewed these older child abuse victims who are now in their 60s, 70s. And the way in which they're talking about it, a phrase, these turns of phrases they use, that just like triggered me, man. It, it, it just it hit me and opened up another batch of you know, memories. And I'm like texting my sister. I'm like, well, I wasn't prepared for this on this you know, series. But going back to your point, you know, it, it sort of get me, got me in this introspective space. I knew I needed to do. I started, you know, I meditated on it. I was thinking about it. I had to fly to New York on Monday for business, meeting my business partner. He's like, what's up? I'm like, I'm just, I'm, I'm navigating this little this little wave right now. I'm just trying to, you know, navigate this wave right now. But you know, all of the ways in which I could view that moment and, and I could discuss that moment and give myself grace, you know, why versus saying, oh my God, it's all, you know, it's all falling apart. It, it was that that's that you're saying. That that's it. That that's the gift of Hoffman. I likely would have had this breakthrough in some way down the road, right? Because it seems like everyone does. You know, if you're a victim of any kind of trauma, there's a point in which you get some 
kind of answers, you know, within yourself. I can't imagine having had these revelations, you know, in 2017, 2018, and not having any tools like helping to rely upon. I, I just I can't imagine it. Yeah, it's sort of a uh, you know girds my system. You know? <laughs> the girding that your connection to your quadrinity helps you navigate these new insights that happen. Yeah, it's like this scaffolding, you know, that I can you know hang everything on. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, and, and it gives me a navigation system and, and a way to, to frame all of this. You know, so the highs aren't too high, the lows aren't too low. You, know, you don't get too attached to any of it, you know, for very long at least. Sean, I want to ask about music and creativity and writing and your harmonica playing. Why the harmonica? Well, I've had two sort of musical lives. So when I first started playing music, the first instrument I picked up seriously was saxophone in college. And it's because a woman I was dating at the time, college student, said I'd look really sexy playing saxophone. And so that was, that was enough for me. <laughs> and so uh, when I got it, I realized that I, was, I had an intuition about it. I, I could intuitively get myself around the instrument. I never learned to read music, but I could fake it and I could hear things by ear and pick them up. And I'm asthmatic. And I've been asthmatic my whole life. And the sax was also really just great therapy for me. It just helped me breathe deeper. I developed this fear of breathing, you know, this fear of my lungs, because I, I had such a challenge breathing my whole life. And, and so I had this sort of fear of taking deep breaths and you know, I sort of freaked out that I wouldn't, the breath wouldn't be there. And it was this really complicated relationship I have with my lungs that I didn't fully realize until I started getting talking to my body, the physical part of my quadrinity. And sax was helping with that, even though I didn't consciously know that at the time, but it totally was. So flash forward, I stopped playing sax when I started songwriting, confronting a band. I started singing and fronting a band. And I started songwriting, which is an extension of writing I've always done. And I wrote initially you know, singer-songwriter folky songs, you know, and then in the tempted vein of my heroes, Dylan and Paul Simon and Joan Armitrading and all this sort of classic singer-songwriters. I played, you know, the harmonica with the neck brace and huffing and puffing and you know there's not not any real artistry to it and then in 2012 i was invited to go to italy with an old bandmate of mine who had an opportunity to play some blues for basically a wealthy italian who liked the blues and so he asked me to come over because he knew i was a fan of the blues and i knew the songbook really well even though i had played it so i went over there and that was the first time i played blues harp you, you play a you know folk harp and it's like this bob Dylan. You know, Right, that's like the classic. I'm exaggerating, but yeah, you know, that's like that folky kind of like you know. But you know, blues harp is like this whole you know. There's just a whole other part of oneself that's access playing you know blues harp, and so when I played it. The combination of playing the harmonica and singing blues music really for the first time connected me to my ancestry. Before the sort of discovery of my sexual abuse, my biggest conscious, I wouldn't even call it a trauma, but the, the battle I was waging inside of myself, the battle I was, I was consciously aware of, that was my biggest one, was about race and identity. You know, I, I grew up in all-white neighborhoods. I went to all-white schools. This is part of the book I wrote. You know, how do I identify as a black man? I, I didn't hold a lot of the stereotypical hallmark, hallmarks of, of a black male. And, and so am I really black if I don't? 
do this or I do that. So I had a lot of identity stuff. I started playing the harmonica. And I felt black <laughs> in the best way. I could feel myself through the breath I was drawing through this instrument. I could feel myself connected you know, from the people who came before me, the people who came after. I could see myself in this continuum every time I draw from this thing. I feel it. It's just like connects me to every aspect of that. And so it was from that moment, I'm like, this is it. I'm dedicating myself to this, to this instrument. The book I wrote is a bit of a love letter to the harmonica. Ellis, the kid in the book, carries a harmonica everywhere. He goes, he plays harmonica. And I did not play harmonica as a kid. The music I make, it, it's just become fundamental to my identity. And it continues to be this, the breath. I get allergic asthma reactions. It's a lot of pollen here right now. I, I get allergic reactions when I'm around cats. I get allergic reactions if I drink certain foods. I mean, my life is... I'm very aware of breathing on a day-to-day basis. And to connect myself with this thing is really, really therapeutic. It almost puts it too, too lightly. Yeah. Sean, I want to ask about your connection to your ancestors and race. And given that the process doesn't really talk about culture or race, we stick with parents a lot. How were you able to use the process as a part of that journey connecting to your ancestors, understanding your blackness? Yeah, I think it's an extension of the family thing, right? Because you know, we talk about, talked about the process, this idea that most everything you do is either in you know, opposition of or in support of what your parents did, right? I mean, that whole questionnaire you fill out before you go to the process, I mean, that was like a mind-bending thing, right? And so, you know, your mom kicked dogs, so you kick dogs, or you know, your dad was a spendthrift, so you blow through money. I mean, all these sort of opposite and likenesses. And, and so, if you extrapolate that out, it would stand to reason that, well, where did they get it from, right? And there's an exercise towards the end, if I recall, where you sort of see yourself sort of connected to your parent and your, and your grandparents. So that whole thing, right? So I mean, it's it's there anyway. It's there in the process, right? It's, it's not through the lens of like race, but this ancestral thing, Raz who was extremely helpful in the early days of my divorce and when I was discovering a lot of this trauma, said, we are all suffering for our ancestors' you know, sins and our ancestors' damage, right? We're sort of, we're living the pain of our ancestors. So that was the foundational piece. It just clearly made sense. And then events that happened in the world and the country and COVID and everything else sort of accelerated it for me at least, accelerated that learning, accelerated that healing. The pillars for me were that parental slash ancestral piece from Hoffman. That's like one solid pillar. You know, this pillar of the blues for me. And then this third pillar of the global conversation you know, that was going on, at least for a time. You know, the conversation has seemed to die down a little bit sadly, but you know, that moment, that jump started it all for me. What's next for you? Uh, you have you have how many albums that you've published? I don't know. A lot. (laughs) I think it's like six or seven blues albums, three sort of pop folky albums before that. So there's maybe close to 10 albums out there. I'm writing a new album and I'm excited to get in the studio later this year and record that. You know, writing the book was interesting. I wrote two books in basically two years, these two middle grade novels. And that was a wonderful experience. And it was a little bit tricky to pivot back to songwriting after that, but I made the pivot back some in the songwriting space right now. Do you have a sense of how the process and your understanding of it and your time there has supported 
the creative process of writing music, of writing books? I was a firmly creative being going in there. I mean, I always have been. You know, the, the writing has always been my safe space. And it's always been the way in, in which I have found it the easiest to express myself. I've always, you know, writing has always been the easiest way for me to express myself. If I'm in pain, the first thing I do is start to write. If I have some intellectual or emotional curiosity I want to itch, I'll write about it. That, that's my go-to. It always has been. So I, I can't say that Hoffman contributed to that in any way. It goes back to the forgiveness thing. You know, I'm, I'm forgiving of myself if my writing process leads me to you know, put the pin down for a little bit, or if I am less productive in one moment than I am in, in another moment. I, I have a lot more faith that the words will come, that every song is not my last song, <laughs> every book is not my last book, which, I, which is a, a bit of a, of a tendency of mine before. There's a little bit of element of panic around the creative process for me beforehand, if I, if I think back to sort of my pre-Hoffman period. And that panic is gone. I'm pretty comfortable with wherever I'm at in that creative process, right? whether I'm, I'm really productive and, and prolific at any moment or whether you know, I'm just writing you know, a line here and there on a, on a matchbook in a restaurant or something. I'm less uh, prone to, to judge myself. So, Sean, you, it's really interesting. I mean, the forgiveness applied to creativity. Most people related to relationships, forgiving their parents, forgiving someone who hurt you. But I just love what you're saying around how forgiveness supports the creative process. Yeah, I mean, forgiveness supports everything, right? <laughs> I've always known that I created work out of pain, but I didn't feel like I had to be in pain to create work. Rather, I was grateful that when I was in pain, I had a means to express that and, and, and a means to make something out of that. That was my gratitude in, in those moments, but I, I didn't feel like I had to live some tortured life in order to create art, you know, even though I, I've created a lot of stuff while I was you know, tortured. You know, I'm a natural optimist. You know? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty wired to think the glass is half full. That just, that's how I roll. You know, the music I play, I, I, I play joyful blues. You know, when, I, when I go on stage, I have a harmonica case, and I open it up, and the back of the case is joy. And that sits on the stage all night facing the audience. And so I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of joy. At the same time, I'm a workaholic, or maybe hopefully a recovering one, and I'm competitive, and I you know, have things I want to accomplish, and I can put pressure on myself like anyone else you know, who, who is um, pursuing goals that are important to them. And so that combination can lead to a lot of unhealthy dialogue, right? And that can shut your ass down. <laughs> yeah, I just learned that, man, you want to keep things, you want to keep things light. You know, I tell my kids this. It's like, man, it's hard to find solutions when, when the temperature is just turned up and you're tight and ratchet up. It's just much easier to get shit done when you're chill. <laughs> and, I, and like I said, I, I think I, I've been like that. I think that's what's got me through the traumas of my life and, and the challenges of my life is that I'm relatively a chill person. But I had no tools to put me back to that position quickly when either my dark side monster, you know, was on my shoulder or whether, or whether I was getting some outside, you know, interference, whatever it was, I, I didn't necessarily have the means to get myself back to that more or less 
pre-natural state. One of the teachers was telling a story about, I don't know, a Zen master or something, and 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 then the teachers were watching this master. They were doing balancing exercises, and then they're saying, "Yo, master, you you never you never lose your balance." And the master said, "I, I do. I, I just recover quickly." That idea of like, you know, how quickly can you just regain your balance again? You know, it's like you stand you stand on one leg and lose your balance, you get back on two. Can you regain it so quickly that no one ever sees you lost it to begin with? Can you like regain it, you know, so quietly and so stealthily that everyone presumes you never lose your balance? Like that's a master. I love that. That's sort of the thing. You know, stay soft, right? Stay soft and, and just get back to one again. It's this language, right? It's literally like it's like any other language. It's like it's like music. You practice, you practice, you practice, and then when you're on stage. You have all these tools to draw upon and you can rely upon inspiration. It's like you don't go on stage and do scales. That, like I said earlier about the clients I work with in this, in this media training, it's like, how do you close the gap between how you wish to be seen and how you are seen? How do you close the gap between what you want to say and what you're able to say? I was with a client in New York City and I, did, I was leading a workshop. For a brief moment, I got a little nervous you know, going up and, and uh, I just sat there and I just did this. I brushed this dark side monster off my shoulder, which is, a, which is a little thing I learned in Hoffman class. We had to visualize this. It's like you know, the devil on the shoulder thing, right? Just like this sort of somatic exercise, right? You know, I just did that before I stood up. I, I, I didn't realize how much I'd draw upon these things. It's such a part of my, my makeup now. You know? um, so yeah, it's, it's just this language that you sort of keep practicing, keep practicing. I still do quadrinity checks. I mean, it, you know, I, I ask my body what it needs all the time. You know, I, I apologize to my body if I'm pushing it. Oh, no, I'm pushing you hard. Let's just get through this one day. I promise you'll get to sleep. Yeah. I mean, this dialogue and this relationship I have, it's just like the air I breathe at this point. It really is. It really is. We all have that dialogue, but what, what I hear in yours is kindness, a kind of truce, uh, a, a listening as well as speaking with the different parts of yourself. Yeah, the forgiveness part has been a journey, right? You know, I've had a lot of you know forced errors, and I've had um, a lot of errors you know forced upon me. And the forgiveness thing has been a journey. Yeah, I went to my uh, my daughter's. I went to her college graduation a couple weeks ago, and it was me and her you know her younger brother and sister, my ex wife, my stepmother, my sister, and it was the first time we've all been together in that configuration for almost five years since my daughter's high school graduation, which was right as we got divorced and to sit around that group of people and for all of us to love each other, you know, and to forgive each other, we cry. <laughs> what a moment in time to, to both treasure, celebrate of your family coming together. To know that I'm, there's a, there's a, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> there's another Hoffman phrase that uh, was great. That helped me. And it was said in relation to my mother, but I've used it for myself. Which is, um, you're guilty, but not to blame. You know, we, um, you're still family no matter what. That's the thing, right? Yeah. We learn that often, right? You're still your family no matter what. You know? It's like, it's just, just sort of a, a text of my kids after the, you know, my son had said, uh, was we're flying back uh, from the graduation. And he had said, uh, you know, oh, it almost felt like we we're a uh, family again. And I said, dude, we're always family. Yeah. And I said, it's just start dumb luck. Yeah. <laughs> we're, 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 just, we're stuck with each other, you know, for better or for worse. <clears throat> and so, uh, and, that, and that's one of those cycles I got broken. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, my 
you know, I'm, I'm a product of divorce. My grandparents are a product of divorce. You know, and that whole ancestral thing. I mean, I, I did my, my whole ancestral rabbit hole diving, realized that on my mother's side of the family, my maternal grandmother's side of my family began as the product of a rape between a Scottish slave holder and my great, great, great grandmother. Right? I mean, that, that's like the origin of a chunk of my family. I mean, so it's like some of the ancestral pain, right? It's, it's a miracle that anything happened possibly. <laughs> and, and so for me to have, you know, I, I didn't break the divorce cycle, but I live 10 minutes away from my kids. I, I drive them to school. I pick them up. They, you know, I, I'm you know, deeply involved in their lives and then they know they have a parent who will keep them safe. That's like cycle broken, man. Thank God. And breaking those cycles is no joke. That's hard work. It's got to be deeply intentional, right? Yeah. And that, and that graduation was uh, proof of it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, man. So the, the journey continues. The journey continues. The struggle continues. And, and there's, there's, no, uh, there, there's no destination. <laughs> and so it's just, you know, how do we just be kind as we uh, ride along? You know, be, be kind to ourselves and kind to each other as we, as we ride along. And that's what I'm looking to do. Sean, I'm grateful for your time, your heart, your vulnerability. What a what a conversation. Thank you. Oh, thanks, man. I hope that uh, this podcast, this conversation, uh, does some good for folks you know, on their journey. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.